Welcome to How to Be an Author. This is a podcast for writers who'd like to become published authors. We'll take you behind the scenes of the book industry. And talk to people who love books just as much as we do. I'm Claire Miller and this is my co-host, Georgia Richter. And later we'll be joined by the comma chameleon who'll hit us with a pickle from the editing world. Well, hello, Georgia. Hello, Claire Miller. Here we are. It's a Friday afternoon. We are celebrating because each of us has our own microphone and we don't have this uncomfortable knee-touching moment when we chat to one another. There's less narrative tension, Claire. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And I'm glad. (laughs) So later today we're going to talk to Deb Hun, who's an amazing resource for writers. She's both a university professor and someone who has been a member of writing groups for many, many years, as well as being a published author. Um, I'm really curious about what you've been up to this week. I believe there's been some Fogarty reading. There has. I am currently reading the manuscripts that are coming in for the Fogarty Literary Award, which, as you know, Claire, is for writers aged 18 to 35. There's a good range so far and it's really exciting to see some new voices coming in and I'm looking forward to the deadline, which is approaching on Sunday, and seeing the big deluge that invariably happens as everyone submits their manuscripts at the 11th hour. See, I'm there at 10 to midnight watching those manuscripts come in in the last 10 minutes, people, and I feel that they should be shunned. If you're doing it in the last 10 minutes, you're just leaving it too fine, you're stressing me out, and then I'm going to put a little red X next to each of your names. If it was up to me, you'd be out. You're a hard woman, Claire Miller. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Wasn't the winning manuscript last year? Wasn't that submitted at eleven fifty nine? Something like that. Brinkmanship. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and you keep rewarding people that are last minute submitters. Well, that's right, but there's no moral there. But it's kind of interesting thinking about Deb Hahn writing groups and universities because one of those Fogarty shortlisters was Michael Burroughs where the line breaks. And in fact, his character, Matthew Denton, is writing his PhD. And I've edited this PhD, so I'm very familiar with it myself. But in the footnotes, his life is falling apart, even as he's going off in search of this great poet, the unknown digger. The novel is imbued with this university setting as well. And I think writers somehow feel that being part of a university is intrinsic to being a writer or part of the writing journey. Didn't you go to university and do a writing degree, Claire? I did. I did. I did an um, undergraduate creative writing minor as part of my degree and I had to, at the time, you couldn't actually do that at Monash University. You had to actually go to Deakin University, which at the time I think was even called Victoria University, um, and to do a minor. And I want to say the person that taught me was Judith Rodriguez, the poet. I yep. think it was her. And she sat down on the very first day and I think she was a smoker and she was quite grey and she had a very husky voice and a little bit overweight and she said to us, take a good long look. This is what you'll look like if you become a professional writer. (laughs) And that was her introduction to the whole year and the whole course. Wow. And I don't think it was very long after that, called me shallow, that um, I decided maybe PR was for me. You were out. (laughs) Yeah. And what about you? I wound up doing a master's in creative writing at UWA. I think one of the great things I got out of my master's was meeting my husband <laughs> in the in the uh, writing group. Love over the typewriter. Exactly. 
And I did also connect to a bunch of writers who I'm still connected to. But I think it's also true to say that a lot of the writing I was doing was just by myself and connecting with people who I'd met along the way to give me feedback. So I don't think writing degree is essential to a writer's journey. And I think that's okay too. I think maybe uni is sometimes, or that kind of structure is sometimes a place where you find what your parameters are and you might be there because you love writing, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a writer. Mm. I felt like when I was there, I was like I was getting great marks, but I felt like what I was writing was very surface and it was all polish, no depth. And I think I realised that I didn't really have a lot to say at that age. I still don't really have a lot to say from a writer's perspective. Um, and yeah, so it's important to understand that maybe creative writing courses can help you with your writing style perhaps, but I'm not sure that it necessarily gives you all the tools that you need. You need something from yourself that's more essential to be to being a writer, I think. As I began to work with writers who really have stories to tell, I realised what the difference between them and me was and that I was equipped to help them as an editor and a lot of the skills that I gained were in that workshop setting where you learn to interact with people and give feedback and receive feedback and really look at the anatomy of what a manuscript is about, but it's the people who've got stuff to say who should go on to become writers and who do go on to become writers. And you don't need to be anywhere in particular or any kind of formal structure around you to be that person. Mm. I think life experience is essential to what a writer has to say and maybe the most practical and useful thing about a university postgrad degree in particular is it's buying you time to write and it's giving you money to do so if you're on a scholarship and you can achieve that in other ways through grants and so forth and time is something that is always going to be a really rare commodity for anyone who's interested in writing. I think now might be a good time to cut to Deb Hun's interview. I think that's an excellent idea, although perhaps first we can do a little Holden Shepherd drive-by. G'day. My name is Holden Shepherd, and I'm one of the authors who contributed to the book How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia. My most recent book is the coming-of-age novel Invisible Boys. Today, I'm providing you with my best tip for aspiring writers which is to find your own unique voice. This is something publishers are always on the lookout for. To do this, I recommend writing either a public blog or a private journal on a regular basis. It helps you find out what you sound like on the page with no expectation or pressure of publication. Also, write as if there are no sacred cows. That is, as if there's nothing you're not allowed to say. You might be surprised at the voice that emerges when you give up thinking about what you should write and just write what you feel. Deborah Hahn is a lecturer in creative writing in the School of Media, Creative Arts and Social Inquiry at Curtin University in Western Australia. Her creative and academic work has been published in a range of anthologies, edited collections and journals, and includes short stories, creative nonfiction, reviews and essays on literature, film and television. 
Deb, hello and welcome. Hello, welcome to you too. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure. You're sitting there with the very first advanced copy of your book, How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer. Yes. And I want to ask you both, how does it actually feel to hold that finished product in your hands? It's great to see the finished product and also because it's such a lovely, colourful, catchy cover as well. It's uh, looking really, really good. For me, it it feels good and solid, but my normal terror of receiving a book back from the printer is only exacerbated. I think I'm just terrified there'll be a typo that I've missed. So ah. I haven't actually looked at it too closely. I've admired it from afar. So don't <laughs> read it. Don't reread it, perhaps. <laughs> um, so you've actually included some words by about 20 established writers in the book. Yes, that's right. But you must meet new writers all the time. So I'm really curious about what some of the common anxieties and apprehensions are when you meet new writers. I think probably the most common anxiety is maybe my work really isn't very good. Maybe people won't understand what I'm trying to do. All those anxieties that come with getting something that you've worked hard on and you've worked to produce and that's possibly very personal to you out in front of other people. So it's that, I think it's that anxiety. Yeah. You really could just write and not show it to anyone, but many writers always have this desire to be read too. So yes. I think I think it sounds like you're actually talking about a line that needs to be stepped over. Oh, yes. You know, they want that feedback. They've been working in isolation for a long time and although they might have that natural anxiety, they're really keen to have somebody read that work and to get that feedback. And even those who are very anxious, I think once they step over that line, they do start to, to thrive. So do you think there can be a time when it's too soon to start thinking about all the other business of being a writer? Certainly there is a point at which work is so early in its formation process that it's difficult for people to actually give feedback on it. It's not polished up to the the point where people can get a coherent sense of what's going on in it and the feedback may not be very productive in that sense for, for the author just get it a little bit more formed. I think going to work to a workshop context too early could be quite damaging. So it can put the other people in the group in a bit of a difficult situation. So I think you've got to you've got to judge it a little bit about when you think you're ready to go. So I think it's a really good idea to know a bit more about the workshopping process mm-hmm. to help you make that decision. Absolutely. That's where your book is so fantastic. They can actually read that chapter and then Thank really you. decide whether mm. it's time for them to workshop or not. Mm. Um, so speaking about the book, I wanted to read something the poet Caitlin made. Wonderful, and, wonderful, wonderful poet. Yes, and I just want to read what she says in the book. She says, it's a cliche, but reading other people's work is the most important part of developing your own. I recommend reading as broadly as possible with three particular streams. Things you love, which can be anything. Things considered great, i.e. what's canonical and think about why. And things that are getting big press now. Why is something hitting the zeitgeist? So this is something that seems to come up quite Mm -hmm. a lot in How to Be an Author, the fact that writers should also be readers. Why is that? If you're writing, you're engaging in a craft, in an art, in a skill. Imagine saying you wanted to be a cricket player without ever having watched a game of cricket or without, with rarely watching, if ever watching a game of cricket. Players will talk about watching the matches of other players and the idea that you could write without 
reading books, it just seems incomprehensible to me because that's where you learn so much about the craft of writing. You start to get your own voice as a writer through reading the works of other people, although that sounds paradoxical. Nevertheless, it is the case that you start to get a sense of what you want to do and how you want to be and how you want your voice to be by working through um, those of others that you admire and and through writing that you don't like as well. I think even David Wish Wilson, the crime writer, says mm. you should almost be trying on other writers' voices before Absolutely. you find your own. I think there's a lot of anxiety about originality and that's understandable. We are living in a, in a context where people are very conscious of issues around plagiarism and, um, and I guess in a more legal sense, copyright. And obviously you don't want to plagiarise somebody else's work directly, but there's a very big difference between that and learning to develop your own style by thinking about the style of others. Yeah, we keep emphasising this importance of a writer being a mm. reader and mm. it's only in being a reader that you understand what it is you need to deliver as a writer. I think part of how we pitched the book, Deb, was that this wasn't a book that was going to tell people how to write. No. But it was for all the other business of being yes. a writer. And I think one of the, the key things in the early going is how do you find a tribe? I think these days with the internet, there are some obvious advantages now of going online and there are a lot of different organisations who are online. There are, you know, various writers' organisations that are online where you can certainly find some level of support and maybe starting with finding the the, the writers' organisation or peak body of the state that you're in and then being able perhaps to say, look, I'm out in rural uh, wherever it is. Have you got some suggestions to me about contacts that might be available to me online through an online group or even closer to home. Um, a library that's reasonably close to your own area, you might be surprised to find there's more than you think. Hmm. So what qualities do you think make for valuable members of writing groups? I think that actually turning up is a crucial thing. That might sound like an odd thing to stress, but I think you do have to get a sense of regularity and clarity of purpose and actually be prepared to engage. That's a that's a no-brainer. I assume you don't just mean they no, need no. to be nice. In fact, somebody who's too nice can be a problem. I love this. This was wonderful. I don't think you need to do anything to it. It's absolutely brilliant. I can't wait to see it finished. Now, very occasionally that might be true, but that sort of overly generous feedback isn't particularly constructive and you certainly don't want it if um, that's all you're getting. And there are things in your manuscript that could be engaged with and that you're looking for that sort of engagement. So you do need people who are prepared to actually, A, read your work with a good sense of critical judgment, okay? So you need that somebody who is actually prepared to read the work attentively, respectfully. You also don't want somebody who wants to just pull everything apart or somebody who wants you to write simply what they want to write, that's a disaster. That's just a, a, a mismatch. So somebody who respects what you're doing but is honest enough to be prepared to say constructively, look, I don't think this is working and can point out to you or ask you appropriate questions and that can be quite a useful thing to do in feedback is to simply ask questions about things that, that you're not sure about um, or you can be you know, more direct and say, look, I don't think this is working for me at the moment, and that's because of this. Ryan said. Yeah. yeah. So we've talked quite a bit about workshopping, but for someone like me, I've never been in a 
writing workshop. Can you break down what it is and what what the elements of a workshop are? What generally tends to happen in, in a workshop is people might bring in a segment of their work. They might bring in 10 pages or it might be a chapter of something or it might be quite a short piece, but it's something that they're working towards. You set up some kind of reading protocol. Now, It might be that you set aside three hours, you've set aside an afternoon and said, okay, we're all going to work on, say, short pieces. We'll set aside maybe the first hour for reading. You must bring in copies. Ideally, you don't want too many people, um, I think, So maximum of 20, say, or? I think 20 is too large, to be honest with you. I would be very disinclined to go with a group that's larger than six people to really get quality feedback. And to also just create a sense of focus. I pictured <laughs> that there'd be a group of people sitting in a circle and that someone would get up and read their work you and then everyone would way. just give their feedback on the fly. But they could read it in advance. You could have an hour of silent reading and you then can. everybody makes comments. So you don't have to be standing in front of a group no. reading out loud. Sometimes people do like to read their work out loud, but if you're actually wanting to give feedback, it can be quite difficult to give feedback on purely read work. Because it's a different experience. It is a very different experience. I think, I think one of the benefits of hearing someone read their work is sometimes you haven't actually fully grasped their voice. And when you hear them delivering it yes. in the way that they intended, you think, oh, oh, okay, I was reading that wrong. But I think it's also important mm. that you identify if you're actually maybe not the right person for that particular piece. Mm. And if the feedback you're going to be giving is actually counterproductive, because maybe it annoys you or maybe you don't get it to say, mm look, I'm, I'm going to sit this one out, this isn't for me, and I think, mm. I think otherwise damage can be done mm. in, in the opposite direction. It's relational, isn't it, so that you tend to come to find who are the people who are your best readers, yes. and they're probably the people who get you and get your work. Over time you refine who your cohort is. I think the other valuable space that really opens up in a workshop is when you have the ability to ask a question and the writer responds and Mm. articulates, there Mm. is then maybe the space to say, now I understand your intention. I didn't understand that before. That feels like something that's missing here. Yes. And I think that dynamic space is something that maybe gets lost if you're simply doing an exchange on paper. Absolutely. So there's something also very valuable about Mm. talking talking. So I think in the ideally in the workshop space, what you do is you have a time to read and make notes. You have to discuss the feedback. That's the really important thing is exactly what you say, Georgia, is to have that dynamic exchange where questions can be posed, answers can be given. Um, of course, the other thing is you've got to be receptive to that feedback as well. Finding that balance mm. between feeling safe to share but also taking the risk mm. of saying what you really think, I guess, is is where it's at. Yeah, it's important to feel that actually ultimately your workshopping group is a safe space mm. where it's not publication, it's mm. work in progress and if that's the understanding, um, you don't need as thick a skin as you will subsequently. Of course, you don't have to take all the feedback on. I mean, that's a really important point to stress that you ultimately you have to be able to make the appropriate assessment of what feedback is going to work for you. You know, somebody might be saying do this and somebody else might be saying do that. You you can't do both of them. So you have to work out what works for you. So ultimately it's got to come back to your judgment. Um, It's very useful to have those opinions. Sometimes looking at them sharpens your own belief that what you're doing um, is actually the best way to go, but it might just need to be polished up in some way to make it work that little bit better. 
I suppose actually this takes us right back to the very beginning, talking about the importance of readers. Mm. Here is actually a writer's opportunity yes. to have some readers and to test their work against yes. those readers. Yes. And to understand that every reader is different. But yes. it, it's an opportunity. Are your friends and family your best readers? Often not, because they find it very difficult in many instances to to divorce themselves from their relationship with you. Much as I loved my mother, I don't think I would have given given her when she was alive anything of mine to read because I think it's too close a relationship. Yeah, I think I think Auntie Sue is either going to be of the, the kind of reader of I love it, I wouldn't change a word, or yes. how dare you. You know that yes. Uncle Cyril was actually a nefarious bound and not the, the lovely man you've made him out <laughs> yes, to be. or vice versa. But even with fiction, you do hear a number of stories of people who have to fend off claims that so-and-so character is based on, you know, Uncle Cyril or whoever it is, when in fact it's it may well not be that there's the tendency to personalise the work. So close ties can be problematic. Can you tell when something's been workshopped, when a manuscript's had feedback already? You fully can. I I think you can tell when something is raw and hasn't gone through many passes. There are degrees of polish and I I suppose a sense that some rigour has been applied and a process has been applied. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, as a reader... You have fewer questions. You drop out of the manuscript less, so you, it's a sustained reading experience. Mm. So the more you have that, the more advanced a workshop has been and usually because it's been tested against other readers. Yeah, I think it can be very, very helpful. I, I just had a flashback to a particular writing group I was in and there was a guy there and he turned up every week and he he really offered very oblique and odd commentary. And he always came with his bicycle. And we started to speculate, maybe he thought it was a riding group and not a writing group. (laughs) And he was just trying to make a good fist of it. Yes. He's bluffed his way through. (laughs) So so what do you, I mean, taking that point up, he was being oblique. What's a good way to deliver critique or advice to other writers? Well, in a way that's comprehensible, I think is is helpful. I I think also the old faecal sandwich where you... (laughs) Tell me about the faecal sandwich, George. I was was afraid you'd never ask. Well, you're offering uh, criticism, but you're also thinking of a couple of positive things you can say to the side. So the bread is nice, but maybe there's a a little bit of something less palatable within the two slices. I think the cardinal rule actually is, as a workshopper, do unto others. So Mm, if you want to receive something that's a little less tasty, you Mm. also want to want to have a bit of buffer. And I think it's human nature too to focus in on the negative and to mm. really dwell on that. So just to provide the mm. the buffer around that is important. You'll get a lot of um, support and you, you might well come out of there feeling, you know, really reaffirmed in your sense of commitment to the piece of work that you're writing. The reader who makes an observation like, it felt rather slow to me here. Did it also feel slow to you? You're actually mm. providing freedom mm. for the writer to say, yeah, I had that feeling. Yes. Thanks, you've given me the freedom to lose yes. that bit. And yes. readers actually often identify the Achilles moments throughout that yeah. then it just liberates them to to uh, shuck that off mm. and to move on. Mm. I think what you've also done there is made it personal. So you've made it clear that your mm. comment is a personal comment based on your own mm. experience of the reading. Mm. Absolutely. 
Is it better for an author to just get other people in the workshop group that are in the same genre or? I think it's more the sense of you think, oh, Deb is a really good plot person. I'm going to I'm gonna get her to look at this because she. I know that I'm in a plot hole right now Yeah, and she's good. I know that such and such is, has a great ear for dialogue. That, that actually you, you, you develop an arsenal of readers who yes. you can deploy at different stages of your yes. own process. Yes. So we've been talking about people joining existing workshops or existing groups. What about those that want to start their own? What are the steps? To be flexible and open at the beginning and think I'm going to look for my tribe. I'm going to look for three, four, five people and I'm going to see who's interested and maybe just to think in terms of logistics, where's it going to take place? what time suits everyone, mm. how long will it be and what's the format? Yep. And I think once you've established that, then you can start to think about, you know, what is it that we want to get out of this workshop and what length of work you want to workshop, um, what sort of feedback process you want, all those things you can start to feel your way through and, and set up. It was interesting hearing you say what you want to get out of it. Yeah. One of the important elements of workshopping is it needs to be dynamic. So if yes. you have a work that is fully finished and you would only yes. like some praise, yes. then you need to be explicit about that and Absolutely. say, I just want to test drive this on an appreciative audience yes. versus I would like some feedback at this stage because I'm stuck, yes. I'm interested in your responses as a reader. So perhaps the writer needs to be explicit each time about what they would like to receive yes. for yes. their piece. And I think also maybe within that group someone may be a more natural org organiser and mm. become the convener or it may be shared mm. between people. Mm. And within a group, you may also decide, okay, tonight we're going to do partner work or yes. tonight we will have only two pieces yes. and the rest of the group will give feedback. And so there might be a bit of trial and error involved in it to see what's really working uh, for people. And and you shouldn't be worried about that. And is it Different... work? Yes, sorry. sorry go on. Deb, no, you, you go, go on. on. <laughs> no, you, you go on. No, you go. <laughs> well, you see, this happens in workshopping, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we're just workshopping this podcast. Yes, right we're now, workshopping we? this podcast. Um, now I've forgotten what you were actually asking. I've me. forgotten what I was going to ask. All right, Georgia. <laughs> you were talking about different models that we set. I was wondering. Yeah, we, I, I do remember. Sorry, yeah, I was yeah. wondering whether it's worth the group writing down a set of guidelines for themselves. I think so. Like that. I think you can you it, you can start by setting out a, a, some protocols and guidelines that you think you know you want to follow. The very first workshopping meeting could be about, for yes. example, people talking a bit about themselves, yeah. their experience, where they're at in the yeah. writing process, and what they would like to get out of the group, because that yeah. may actually be the thing that determines who is at the same stage as someone else. It's also mm. useful to have people at a, a degree of uh, stages, I think, too, yeah. within a group. It doesn't. You don't all have to be novices. No. And then working out who's compatible. It's it's kind of mm. like a deconstructed book club. You know, you're working yeah. at the other end of the book, but you might Absolutely. you might decide we don't get the wine out until nine p.m. No. because it's way too silly if we do. We'll put in some good hard work beforehand, yes. or however it works. Mm. Yeah. And also for new writers, it must be good for them to know if you're coming into an existing group, you've yes. got something to offer. Yes. Um, you're going to be bringing something fresh to the group yeah. as well. So don't be shy about coming in and and, um, and working with ex experienced authors, no. experienced workshoppers, I guess. Because I think every writer is actually, because they're also a reader, every reader response is valid. So mm. even if you feel like you're an absolute writing novice, as a reader, yeah. you're not a novice and any any reaction you have to work 
is one that is useful for a writer to hear in a workshop in context. In fact, as a novice, she might be a very, very useful reader because the group who has been working together for a long time and may well be practised, experienced, perhaps published writers by this stage, um, you know, they've got into a certain kind of reading groove and so that fresh response can be very, very valuable. Well, thank you so much for coming in and congratulations to you both again for the for the advanced copy of the book, How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia. Um, Can't wait to get it out there into the world and we'll be having a chat again soon, I'm sure. Oh, I hope so. It's been most enjoyable. This couch would be very suitable for a writer's group, actually. I think make a nice little uh, writer's group space on this couch and little table, a couple of armchairs. Yeah, the lazy boys. (laughs) Deb's moved in. I have. Watch out. So, Georgia, I just want to point out that the Comma Chameleon leaderboard is sitting at 1-0 in my favour. So I know my prefixes from my suffixes and my etymology from my entomology. Claire, as a bad loser, I'd like to just remind you that the Comma Chameleon is talented Fremantle Press editor Armel Davies. Each episode she'll be quizzing us on some artefact she's unearthed in the editing world. Hello. Well, today I wanted to ask you a question about typesetting. So although it's not something that editors necessarily do themselves, it's something that we still have to understand because sometimes we have to brief designers on it and every design element communicates meaning. So we have to understand what that meaning is. So in book design, what is a dinkus? I know it sounds like something rude. (laughs) Our options are A, A single short word left on a line by itself at the end of a paragraph. B, a glyph used to separate sections or scenes. Or C, a curly decorative stroke on a letter form, especially in script font. Just to give me a bit of time to think, how do you spell dinkus? Uh, D-I-N-K-U-S. And what were the options again? Just giving myself time to think. (laughs) All right. So we have A, a single short word left on a line by itself at the end of a paragraph. B, a glyph used to separate sections or scenes. And C, a curly decorative stroke on a letter form, especially in script fonts. I think I want it to be B, the the name for the little separating glyph, because I think that deserves to have a name and I would like to think of it as a dinkus. Well, I think Curly script is dinkus-like. I think you could say that. But I actually, my feeling is A, and I don't know why. I just feel like a dinkus, I don't know, leaving a small word at the end of a line might look a bit weird, might make you feel like a bit of a dinkus if you go back to it later. So I'm going to go A. All right. Well, the correct answer is Georgia's answer, B. No! For a dinkus, it's used as a decorative element in a text, something like three asterisks in a row, or maybe like a little glyph, uh, or something like a fluoron, a little flower-like symbol. So um, we've used some dinkuses in our books. For example, recently I used a dinkus of a book, a little glyph in The Last Bookshop by Emma Young, and that was a fun little moment with the author to pick the dinkus. I think you've had some memorable ones, do you think, Georgia? Well, I'm just actually laughing over the the idea that you'd pick the dinkus. Also, how do you know, Armel, that dinkuses is the plural of dinkus? Mm, I think I must have read it somewhere, but I'll have to check on that one. 
We it need, could we, be ding pie. Indeed, it could. We need to be accurate when we're talking around the water cooler. I think that most fun dinkaset that we've come up with lately was a little, what do you call steering wheels on boats? The captain's wheel, which we've inserted into Mel Hall's The Little Boat on Trusting Lane. I personally am rather flattered, though, when authors submit their manuscripts to me in the font Georgia. I think that's a good move. (laughs) They're just sucking up then. Have you ever had a manuscript submitted where somebody submits their own dinkai? I'm going to go with dinkai. (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's fair to say you can spend too long worrying about your font choice, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, Gutenberg and his printing press, he had that really clunky Gothic font and that took up quite a lot of length on a line. The Italians, when they got their printing press, they realised that if you chose a font that lent to the right, then you could fit more words on the line. And that's called italics because it comes from Italy. Hmm. Yeah, well, and different font use can communicate different meanings as well. So if that's something that's important in your book, for example, if you have some chapters that are set in a modern time and some that are historical then that's something that you would need to communicate to your editor who will then um, translate that through to the typesetter. So, Comma Chameleon, where do you stand on Comic Sans? Well, I'm personally not a fan and a lot of people would say that it is an unfashionable font, but it is actually quite important for some people because apparently it is much more legible to people who have dyslexia. So it does have a place even in book typesetting. It is also important to think about things like not using all caps in words because the word shapes themselves are important. As you would know, especially if you're a proofreader, when you read, your mind tends to skip over the actual individual letters and just read the shape of the words. So avoiding all caps, apart from not being shouty, is important for legibility. So for everyone out there who loves a good shouty email, all caps are in fact doing the opposite of your intention. Thanks, Comma Chameleon. That was capital. Bye. Well, this time we've been back to the very beginning with Deb Hunt. So next time I reckon we head into your territory, Miller, with an episode focusing on promotion. You've talked to Rowena Morecambe of Good Reading. I have. Rowena is a journalist. She's an editor and a businesswoman. I found out she's also a bookseller. I've known her for over a decade. She's a true blue book enthusiast and an absolutely delightful woman. So make sure you tune in next time for that one. It was great to have you with us on the podcast today. If you subscribe on your favourite platform, you'll never have to miss an episode. And if you'd like to be a part of the Fremantle Press community, join us on the How to Be an Author in Australia Facebook group. You'll be able to discuss the ins and outs of writing there with other writers and with us, along with many of the contributors to the book I wrote with Deborah Hun. How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia is available from fremantlepress.com.au and all good bookstores. See you next time. Bye.